very grateful to be here with all of you today. Um, have a long history with the Meeting House, and um, you're the reason in large part that the Dale still exists, so I want to say that. Um, for some of you, though, I'm a stranger, and so I think I want to start uh, by telling you a bit about myself, uh, because I think it does provide some context to what I now do. Um, I hope that in doing so, you will better understand the context out of which I live. I hope that you will hear that I am a believer in and lover of community and how relationships deeply matter to me. I hope that you will sense my faith, something that I can't imagine my life without. I hope you will hear my acknowledgement that while life is a difficult roller coaster, it can only make any kind of sense to me uh, because of God. In Jesus, I find hope. Uh, there's a lot that's true of my life that is too heavy to bear on my own, uh, too deep to undo, uh, but in Christ I have found a future. And so in every area of my life, I hope, or my desire, is to share this hope and joy. Also, as we sort of discuss uh, what it means to be the Dale and how we've kind of emerged and changed and something I know that the Meeting House is going through as well, um, that you will see that I've had to do that before, <laughs> that I've had to rebuild before. So I remember standing on a chair in a room not unlike this one uh, to see what was going on in the front. I was small, only in kindergarten, my mother was beside me, holding my hand so that I wouldn't fall off the chair. Uh, we were at Grace and Peace, a little church plant that met in a rented space, surrounded by people who were part of recently exposing my mom to Jesus. It might sound surprising, but actually that was the day that I decided I also wanted to know God. In a way, I cannot recall a time I didn't believe uh, my mom often described her own conversion as one where she was aware of moving toward a great light. And if you knew my mom, <laughs> uh, she meant that in a very genuine sense. As a result of her profound faith, I wanted to form my own. So I was born to my mom, Elaine, and my father, Barry Grant, here, right here in Toronto. A lot of people look at me sideways when I say that, as though no one comes from Toronto, but I did. I was born at St. Michael's Hospital. Uh, while I was in grade two, my parents gathered us into our living room and told uh, my brother, Logan, who joined me four years after I was born, um, their difficult decision to divorce. The impact of that event has been long-lasting in my life as a child with or maybe just a person, with people-pleasing and perfectionistic tendencies, I wanted to fix things. Uh, though my father did not intend to leave me or my brother, it felt as though he had. Um, I do acknowledge that however challenging the situations, my parents did a remarkable job um, of remaining kind to one another and working hard to take care of my brother and I. So our church proved to be a place that took care of me, my mother, and my brother, 
Now a single parent, my mom needed the spiritual and practical support of others. Though my father uh, tried to provide for us financially still, I know that our rent was often subsidized by the church. It became common for our living room to be full of people gathered to pray. I was baptized at Grace and Peace, surrounded by people I still count as surrogate parents. And so this was my foundational church experience. I later decided to attend what is now known as Tyndale, Years that proved to be life-altering for me, I found opportunity to be mentored by a variety of people. I became friends um, with two fellow students who had lived experience on the street and were now encouraging others to engage in what they were calling urban ministry. Um, at their invitation, I decided to do what they called a street walk. And so one night, uh, we went downtown came right here, uh, armed with bag lunches uh, for people who were in obvious need. Uh, what was completely disarming about this experience was how comfortable I immediately felt. I had grown up in affluent North Toronto, where I rarely faced the reality of homelessness, surrounded by a church that never allowed my family to go without. So while we were not affluent, we were surrounded by people who were. Suddenly, I was sitting with people in an underground parking lot at the Royal Bank Plaza in makeshift cardboard houses and feeling at home. So I slowly became aware of God's call on my own life to accompany people in the margins. My studies impacted a developing philosophy of ministry, one that incorporated the Beatitudes of Jesus, which say, blessedness is found in broken places. So outside at night, in alleys, down stairwells, and under bridges, I touched and experienced Jesus, the one who went before me and was already present in those unexpected places. I married Dion Oxford in 1998, together with our now 19, almost 20-year-old daughter, which freaks me out. Um, <laughs> Uh, Kate, we have chosen to form Deep Roots in Toronto, working in a variety of settings, um, including places like Toronto City Mission, um, Sketch, Sanctuary. Dion was the founding director of The Gateway, which is a shelter for men at Jarvis and Richmond. Um, for the last 27 years, 15 of those in Parkdale, I have worked as an advocate who, for people who know poverty. So with their help, I can honestly say that I have also come to understand my own. So I am no stranger to struggle. Uh, Dion was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, degenerative autoimmune disease, shortly before we were married. We were actually um, engaged at the time. And while we have sought to not allow MS to define Dion or us, um, it has admittedly uh, deeply impacted our journey. Um, in mid-August of last year, uh, I had to take Dion to the hospital. Uh, this happened certainly on many occasions, but that particular crisis uh, led him to permanently living in long-term care. 
my father, who I had a complicated relationship with, though loving, <laughs> uh, died suddenly and unexpectedly in 2008. My mother died in May of 2017 after having lived in hospital for 13 years uh, with me as her primary caregiver. Um, and she was there because of the removal of a non-malignant tumor in a very bad place, right at the base of her brainstem. Um, I see on an almost everyday basis the results of serious trauma in the lives of my community. So I am the executive director and pastor of the Dale Ministries, a community in the West End of Toronto, once known as Parkdale Neighborhood Church, PNC for short. Uh, 10 years ago, I became the only staff. And at that time, we had to face a very difficult decision uh, and realization, I should say, uh, that our funding had run its course. I was asked to come up with a strategic plan one that might revision, reimagine, rebuild how we exist in the community, which was exciting and absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, the irony was though that we were flourishing as a community, we did not have the resources to continue paying rent or all of the things surrounding that. Um, as a community that has and continues to have at our core, those who are marginalized due to poverty we needed to acknowledge that our financial sustainability would not be found within. Uh, our people, and I always want to say this clearly, our people gave generously. It was just out of their relative little. Um, and so, having given notice to our landlords on a sunny day near the end of June of that year, I took down the sign from the gate and the door of the building that had been our home for years. That day we became a church without our own walls. I like to say it was the day that we spilled into the street. Community members decided that leaving a trail of footprints would be a good way to assure people that we weren't gone. And so we actually dipped our feet in chalk paint and uh, left a trail so people could follow us. We thought it was gonna be washable. It was there for a very long time. <laughs> which was kind of good. <laughs> um, we began to use a variety of spaces around our neighborhood for our programming, church fellowship halls, a Salvation Army thrift store, um, a Franciscan monk-run restaurant called St. Francis Table, a community health center, what used to be a coffee time, and the outdoors. We prioritized spending time on the street, visiting people, offering support at appointments and in court, by choosing to exist in a small area, we could intentionally inhabit much of it. So part of our reimagining also included finding a new name. So I asked our community members to describe what PNC had meant to them. And they used a number of different words, but the, the word that cropped up the most was safe. A dale is a valley that cuts through a mountain, and it's where you go during the time of a storm to be safe. So instead of standing on top of the mountain waiting to be hit by lightning, you go into the dale. So the dale ministries, or more often simply the dale, endeavors to be a safe community or safe enough community for many, including me.
Uh, Jane Jacobs, who was an American-Canadian journalist, author, and activist, influenced this new approach at the Dale. During her lifetime, Jane advocated for cities to be oriented around people. This is a quote, a city street equipped to handle strangers and to make um, a safety asset in itself out of the presence of strangers. As the streets of successful city neighborhoods always do, they must have three main qualities. So first, streets and their sidewalks are framed by buildings. These buildings provide the important thresholds between public and private spaces. They are the tangible facilities, as Jane called them, that allow streets to be vibrant public spaces. So if buildings fail to provide permeability, harmony and rhythm, the street as public space suffers. So streets are in essence public spaces and connect diverse areas of the city, weaving the urban fabric. Second, there must be eyes upon the street, eyes belonging to those we might call the natural proprietors of the street. The buildings on a street equipped to handle strangers and to ensure the safety of both residents and strangers must be oriented to the street. They cannot turn their backs or blank sides on it and leave it blind. And third, the sidewalk must have users on it fairly continuously, both to add to the number of effective eyes on the street and to induce the people in buildings along the street to watch the sidewalks in sufficient numbers. So the Dale spends a lot of time on the sidewalks around Parkdale. We sit with people in parks and on street curbs. From there, we move to buildings where we can be welcoming to all people. We also spend time in businesses, getting to know the people who run them. For instance, like a place called the Rustic Cosmo, uh, a restaurant that has historically and generously allowed our staff team to linger for a long time for our staff meeting. This is our attempt at weaving that urban fabric. So it's a Monday, uh, pre-pandemic, which means drop-in time at the Dale. Since the pandemic, uh, this has shifted to being a meal to go, which I can talk about maybe a bit more later. Um, but at this point, from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m., people would come into the space for a variety of reasons, to have a cup of coffee, to chop vegetables for lunch at 1 p.m., to play a song on one of our beat-up and well-used guitars, uh, to chat, to get a token for the TTC. People come for any number of reasons, but if we, were boil, if we were to boil it down to one, I would say it is to connect. Um, so the Dale welcomes all people and makes intentional space for those who are too often pushed to the margins. We are a varied group. Most of us live rough outside some in community housing, and only a few in houses of our own. Some of us are struggling with addiction to street drugs, or alcohol, or television, or social media, or eating too much food. Some of us have diagnosed mental health challenges that range from depression and anxiety, things that are very you know, well known and understood uh, by many, um, all the way to paranoid schizophrenia. We are a motley crew, 
one that in large part knows what it is to be shunned and pushed away because we smell like the street. In an effort to silence the voices that say otherwise, we acknowledge that we share a common humanity. I often say that many of my friends wear their challenges so close to the surface that they can't hide them even if they wanted to. Um, I have challenges, but maybe I have the capacity to kind of push them down and manage them in a way uh, that doesn't mean everybody has to see them without my choosing, which is different. In a way, by so openly sharing themselves, these friends give me permission to do the same and remind me that we are all uh, fragile beings. We know we need help and choose again and again and again to journey alongside one another toward deeper wholeness in Christ. I first met Fred, not his real name, but he knows I'm telling this story, <laughs> um, outside the community center at the corner of Cowan and Queen. Um, he was immediately menacing and demanded that I give him a pair of tokens. I didn't have tokens. In fact, at the time, our bank account was overdrawn. Um, I tried to explain all of this, but none of it mattered. Uh, to Fred, I was a person he expected to have been able to meet his immediate need, um, which made sense. Uh, through tears, I tried to explain our situation. Through anger, he described his own. Our parting that day actually wasn't very pretty. <laughs> um, Fred slowly began to show up at our Monday drop-in. His big personality and even bigger voice would fill the room. He claimed to hate our food, uh, routinely told us our coffee sucked, and almost always became threatening. Rather than leaving at our request, um, which sometimes was necessary because uh, we're trying to create a space where everyone is feeling safe. And so if somebody's not contributing to, or contributing to the unsafety, we might have to ask them to go for the moment. Um, but he would say, I am not going anywhere. Uh, Fred was accustomed to being restricted from drop-in centers and seemed intent on testing us to see what we would do. Uh, one day, he decided to scream at me, really scream, um, that I was terrible. We ended up standing nose to nose in an alley-like driveway um, at the side of our drop-in building. I felt determined in that moment, at least in my mind, to not let him get away with the way he was treating me and multiple other people that day. And um, it wasn't my best moment. <laughs> um, amazingly though, there is a grace that transcends. And that match in the alley, because it really did turn into that, um, became our turning point. Both Fred and I needed time to discover who the other was. Uh, for many valid reasons, Fred distrusted people. For many valid reasons, I felt threatened by Fred. Uh, building a relationship and trust was going to take time. Um, if either of us had bolted, 
we wouldn't be where we are now, uh, which is that Fred and I have a friendship. Uh, we have developed a way to talk with one another. He makes me laugh. I make him roll his eyes, mostly. Um, things still go sideways, but with less regularity. Um, for a long time, I was convinced that Fred, though he would rarely admit it, felt welcome. Uh, now he not only admits that, uh, but he tells us that he loves us. And we love him. <laughs> so there is no living life on the surface at the Dale, which I would argue is its own hard work to do. Instead, we dive deep into the complex intertwining of joy and sorrow, delight and grief, contentment and distress. To be honest, I can't imagine living another way. Uh, and so with this in mind, I would like us to think through a psalm that we often sing at the Dale, and it's Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So one of my confessions today is that I feel like I'm almost always in the midst of singing Psalm 13 or asking God, how long? Um, how long, oh God, will you allow multiple sclerosis to eat away at Dion? Will you heap loss upon loss? Um, at the end of last year, after not being able to host funerals, which is something that Dale loves to do, um, dignified, respectful, uh, end-of-life things, um, we finally were able to host something, and it was for 46 people. <laughs> so at the Dale, we ask, how long? How long, O oh God, will you wait to heal David, who drowns himself in alcohol because of the horrific experience he had in a residential school? Will you let a landlord take everything but $35 of someone's social assistance for a tattered, bug-infested room? Today, we might ask, how long, how long will this pandemic continue to linger? <laughs> um, you might have your own how long questions. So maybe you can think about those. What are your own how long questions? What are some promises of God that you might be able to hold on to? Think about a time God has felt silent. How do you manage that? How do you praise God? What do you want to offer praise to God for? So this question, 
how long, is actually repeated four times in the psalm. Charles Spurgeon says that it betokens very intense desire for deliverance and great anguish of heart. In moments of need, the psalmist frequently ask God why he chooses to hide his face. They long, I long, for God to reveal his shining face and offer deliverance and blessing. So I believe that one of the biggest challenges in praying Psalm 113 uh, is the potential for one, for me, to become incredibly impatient. I am keenly aware right now that when I quiet myself enough to listen, the one thing that rings out is the Lord saying, be patient. Henry Nouwen once said, a waiting person is a patient person. The word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Psalm 13 ends with a statement of trust, with rejoicing and with an acknowledgement of God's love. This after a long section of lament and longing. Some might feel this doesn't make sense. How can there be both deep grief and joy? Um, I have a friend who wrote a dissertation on the book of Lamentations. And if you've never read Lamentations, uh, it's what it sounds like. It's a book of lament. Um, she often talks about how joy does not come naturally to her. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm sure some of you can relate to that. I know I can relate to that. Um, she describes Lamentations as obviously not a happy book. Uh, we often sing songs in church with the phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and she struggles to join in. Um, with that context in mind, imagine her surprise when she read the following in a commentary on Lamentations. Joy and mourning should not be understood simply as expressions of emotion, but they are religious concepts. Joy is associated with sacrifice and being in God's presence. So is isn't just you feeling happy. It's a sense of presence, while mourning is associated with being cut off from God, so the absence of. And that's a joy that I feel like I can get behind. It's, one, it's um, a concept of joy that she can, too. Uh, Psalm 13 is but one instance in Scripture where people have the apparent gumption to question the ways of God. Um, I've gotten quite good at it, truth be told. <laughs> I often question where God is in the turmoil and injustice of the world. About 600 years before the birth of Jesus, Habakkuk asked a similar question. Why, God, do you make me endure evil? Perhaps both Habakkuk and I, one of those early prophets, um, on an even deeper level are asking, how can I keep my faith in you? when it seems you have abandoned me. So for Habakkuk, the answer comes as this. Write down the vision clearly on the tablet so that one can read it readily. For the vision still has its time, presses on to fulfillment, and will not disappoint. If it delays, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not be late. So here, we have a spiritual exercise that has been at the heart of liturgical practice, both ancient and modern, to thwart doubt and prevent despair, 
contemplate the original vision of God's loving promise, the one that captured your heart and prompted you to follow Christ in the first place. Write it down, read it, commit it to memory, look for it and wait for it, be patient, but expect it to arrive. So as we consider this, uh, we might think or identify um, how God is calling us to be present to the world. Um, I would suggest that this is an especially important exercise. It was pivotal during the crisis in Parkdale. I knew then that we had to remember the source of life and our life as community together. I know now that we must do the same as we consider how to be and rebuild after the devastation of the pandemic. So what is your vision? Write it down, commit it to memory, take time to discern what steps you can take in it. So in Isaiah, we are given God's vision for us. And this is a passage that I go to frequently. Uh, it says this, uh, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. So if we embrace God's vision, what does caring for our city, in a local sense, look like? It seems to mean uh, sharing food and clothing, uh, building shelter, dismantling oppressive systems, seeking justice. It looks like sharing what we have and redistributing wealth. In scripture, there are a thousand references to people who are poor and to the different types of people who are poor, the oppressed, the famished, the dependent, the dispossessed, and so on. Then there are another thousand verses that speak to justice and yet another thousand verses that speak to the impact of the reign of injustice on our land. So given the weight of scripture toward poverty, we the church need to take it seriously. We must rally around it. We must learn to understand the different ways in which we are all poor. So this actually is something for all of us. It's not just for a small group of people. Um, because there are those amongst us who are not economically poor, uh, but dealing with poverty in other ways. I often say that at the Dale, there's a real poverty of relationship, and maybe that's where you feel your own poverty in relationship. We are invited to take our common humanity seriously. Biblically, we all suffer. Um, I don't love that, but it seems to be true <laughs> that... Uh, that death is something that we will all experience and that suffering, the suffering that leads to death is a given. Um, 
so knowing this, how do we move forward? So I believe we need each other. We need to engage in our place, our neighborhood, our city. We can get outside, we can walk the area, get on those sidewalks I was talking about earlier. Uh, the longer you do this, the easier it is to notice the person who is always sitting on the same bench, or the store owner who sweeps the sidewalk at the same time every day, or the family who really loves playing in the little park beside the community center. Uh, practice presence and see how relationships form. Be an attentive listener. Allow yourself to be cared by a friend just as you try to care for them. Notice that the Spirit of God is already at work in our neighborhoods and that we are invited to participate in it. Build partnerships and notice how helpful it is to complement one another's work, that we don't all have to do the same thing and that we are actually stronger together. I think we also need to take a posture of humility and repentance. For those of us with privilege, we need to name it and make space for people whose voices have been stifled. We need to extend welcome and hospitality. The pandemic has provided an opportunity for us to take a hard look at what wasn't, wasn't working before. And I mean that generally, right? I think as a society, we're noticing there were a lot of things not working. <laughs> and we could seize this as an opportunity to find new and healthier ways of doing things. So how does the Dale do this? Well, um, or how do we try to do this? <laughs> uh, how do we come alongside people and extend welcome? We begin with a very low threshold. People are invited to come as they are. For instance, sad or happy, high or sober. We have determined that our spaces need to be both safe and respectful. We seek to co-create such spaces by listening with understanding, speaking with kindness, and building opportunities to both give and receive. We talk a lot at the Dale about inviting people into full participation of the community in a way that's good for each person. Uh, what we've discovered is that when you are a person that is always on the receiving end of charity, which can happen if, if there are things that you need and somebody else has them, but if you are always on the receiving end of charity, um, you can actually lose the belief that you have anything of value to give. And we are all created in the image of God and we are all built to give and receive. Um, if someone is contributing to the space being unsafe or disrespectful, as I mentioned with Fred earlier, we will challenge the behavior to the point that if it doesn't stop, we might have to ask the person to leave. But important is that we are never retracting relationship. Trust is earned slowly. So how does a community become engaged? At the Dale, again, everyone is invited into full participation. We try our best to eliminate anything that feels us, them. It is about us creating community together. It's not just about me doing something for. This means, as an example, that at one of our meals to go, a community member has been the one handing out the food. Um, and that as a staff, we've been standing in line with our folks. Uh, we often say that while our roles might differ at the Dale, and they do, our shared responsibility for it does not. 
Um, for me in the Dale, this kind of inclusive community requires um, three things, creating awareness, breaking down barriers. We are more the same than we are different. At the same time, we can celebrate what makes us each unique and fostering friendships. So practicing presence, again, being available, getting to know one another's names, sharing ourselves in an authentic way, daring to be vulnerable. Sometimes when I talk about vulnerability, people, uh, I can see, I, well, I've been told that people can get their backs up <laughs> um, because their experience of vulnerability maybe has been that somebody, uh, that I could be standing here sharing maybe all of the nitty gritty details about things that maybe you don't need to know. Um, but vulnerability, if you study the word to be vulnerable, it's actually about being authentic. So how do we share what's going on in our lives in an authentic, appropriate way? Um, the Dale did what many describe as the unimaginable by becoming a church without our own building. In the context of this little struggling church community, we are reminded of God's presence. God has seen fit to multiply the loaves and the fishes in Parkdale, and I mean this quite literally. In the early days of our crisis, when there was no money to purchase food for our drop-in, we somehow had full plates. And I'm not making that up. Not only full plates, but enough for people to take it to go. I am no longer the only staff. <laughs> I was joined by community workers, Joanna, Megan, and Olivia, surrounded by a community that has heard the invitation into full participation. I have always found it interesting that in order for a seed to grow and rise toward the sun, it must first be committed to the darkness of the earth. This ancient symmetry of growth is powerfully embodied in the great poise of the trees. A life that wishes to honor its own possibility has to learn, too, how to integrate the suffering of dark and bleak times into a dignity of presence. Letting go of old forms of life, a tree practices hospitality towards new forms. It balances perennial energies of winter and spring within its own living bark. The tree, poet John O'Donohue concludes, can reach toward the light, endure wind, rain, and storm precisely because it is rooted. Ten years into this wild experiment, um, the tree that is the Dale still exists. We are here. We are here even into year three of a pandemic. My good friend and mentor, Rick Tobias, who maybe some of you would have known, he was the CEO of Young Street Mission for years and years, um, said, coming alongside people is the last hope for the church and its witness. He believed, as I do, that there are two things that function as credible witnesses for the church. First, unity. Um, our disunity can actually contribute to our anti-witness. So how do we stand with someone who disagrees with us? We need to learn how to journey in the unity of the Spirit of God. And second, engagement with people who are poor and marginalized. 
Um, and again, not only economically poor. Uh, this is where we can feel close to God, in the place where we give ourselves to others. We all carry suffering. So in that, when we gather with people, let us stand with you. Rick believed that by taking care of this pastoral mandate, so many other things would take care of themselves um, and naturally follow. So if we love people who others have deemed unlovable, something happens. I can learn, we can learn to give ourselves period, even if there is no gain to us. So practicing presence takes time. Our relationship with Fred is a prime example of that. And I'm just going to close with words that I've, again, often turned to um, by Oscar Romero. And I think these are a profound and good reminder for any of us as we imagine what it means to go into the neighborhood, to be in the neighborhood. So from Oscar Romero, so it is for us. We may never see end results, and what we do in the end may be very incomplete. Still we minister, still we love, hoping for the kingdom which is beyond our vision. Still we plant and water the seeds which may not be our own, but in truth belong to future generations. Still we find meaning in our lives as incomplete as they may actually be because we participate in something much larger than ourselves. And in this hope, we prophesy of the kingdom of God. We prophesy of a future that is not our own. Let's take a moment just to pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for um, sustaining this community, the Meeting House, downtown um, and I thank you for sustaining the Dale and for the way that um, the meeting house has influenced that sustainability God help us now to have eyes to see what it is that you are calling us to help us to have our eyes on the street Help us to notice um, the poverty in our own lives, what we might be lacking, and the poverty in others. Help us to enter into relationships where we are um, able to both give and to receive. Help us in the context of community to journey alongside one another toward deeper wholeness in you, O oh God. Change our lives. And may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.